Well, if you will, turn to Acts 19. Your paper notes say Acts 20. It was my fault. We're in Acts 19. So if you will, go to Acts 19, and we're going to be there all night. Now, as you go to Acts 19, a bit of some self-disclosure. So growing up, I was one of those kids that got scared easily. I was a scaredy cat. I guess that's what we call those kind of kids. And so I can remember many times curled up on the floor of my parents' bedroom, worried about some creature that was going to come under the bed or whatever and get me. And honestly, most of it was my fault. Most of it was my fault. Curiosity would get the best of me, and I would watch things I had no business watching, and it would inevitably terrify and freak me out. And so there's one show, I don't know if you ever heard of it, but if you grew up in the 90s, you knew of this show on Nickelodeon called Are You Afraid of the Dark? And so I would watch this, and kind of the premise of this show is a bunch of high school kids sitting around a bonfire, and then one of them would tell a story, a scary story, a, a ghost story, and these stories were terrifying. But as I got older, you know, I wasn't as scared anymore until I took a class called Spiritual Warfare in graduate school. And it was a class that was kind of team taught with a professor and a missionary, and they would tell story after story of these real life experiences, and we'd be looking at kind of kind of a theology of the demonic. And I remember driving home, because it was a night class, and it's in Portland, and the rain was coming, and I started freaking out. I, my heart started racing, as you can imagine, and all of the little, little Steven-ness of his scaredy cat came out, and I was kind of freaking out. And the reason is pretty simple, because I believe this book, right? And so as we were looking at it, as we were reading it, I was like, this stuff isn't metaphorical. It's not symbolic. And so when my son comes downstairs and says, Daddy, I'm scared, right? Wh what do I say? What do I say? I, should I look to him and say, those are legitimate concerns. There, you know, there are things that go bump in the night under your bed. No, of course, of course I wouldn't say that. And yet... What do you say to your children? Or what do you say to yourself? Kind of the question to frame this is, what in the world does Jesus have to, to say and have to do with darkness, true darkness? So Acts 19, we're going to start in verse 11. So our author, Luke, he's, he gives four narrative snapshots, if you will, about ministry in Ephesus. And last week, Matt talked about the first two, and tonight we're going to look at the third. So ministry in Ephesus, and I, I suppose in every culture and in every time, is complicated. And so here's kind of what Ephesus looked like. Ephesus was a strategic position made, and she was known as the treasured house of Asia. She was the mother of materialism and ambition, Ephesus was the site of the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. 127, 127, listen to that, marbled pillars rose 60 feet to support that gorgeous ceiling. Many of them inlaid with gold and rare jewels and gems. The temple 
was a huge canopy covered an area of 425 feet and had a width of 200 feet. And it housed the image of Artemis, which was kind of legend said it fell from the stars. And this temple was the center of a thriving and lively cult of fertility worship. And as such, Ephesus became a kind of a collecting place for superstition and the magic arts. You know, more or less, it was a cesspool of the occult. Ephesus was the water house and a water hole for every kind of magician and witch and clairvoyant and criminal. Con artists, murderers, and shady characters of all sorts all loved the climate of Ephesus and its tolerant and agreeable worldviews. So Ephesus was a, it was a fortress. It was a dark fortress. It was the Transylvania of the day with Count Dracula as a naturalized and normal citizen. That's Ephesus. Welcome to Ephesus. And though the kind of the dark tower of Ephesus stood tall year after year, seducing and intoxicating Asia Minor, the light of the gospel was being burst out and slowly but inevitably tearing it down. And darkness had no shot at all. Now, I'm, I don't know if it's because of Star Wars or whatever kind of pop culture, but I think we kind of get this idea that there's light and there's darkness and they're kind of yin and they're yang and they keep each other in equilibrium and they keep each other in check, but that's not what we find in the Bible. No, the power of God, the light of God, subtly, powerfully, and uniformly overwhelms the power of darkness. And we're going to see it actually in this text. So Luke kind of details for us how in verse 11 it says, God was doing some extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, this is unbelievable. We're going to get back to that. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to evoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, in a city like Ephesus, exorcism was a common trade, right? I mean, this is Transylvania after all. And the best exorcists were thought to actually know the names of the powerful spirits. So it was commonly believed that the Jewish priests had a 
particular name of their God, and therefore they had particular power over spirits. And so, it quite naturally, some renegade Jewish exorcist just added Jesus' name to their incantation. And it was, it was good for business. And so we have these seven sons of Sceva who thought they could just gain another quick buck and use Jesus' name in their exorcism, in their incantation. And what happens next? Right? They didn't see it coming, did they? The evil spirit says, who are you? Right? I, I know this Paul, but who the heck are you? And how dare you try to exorcise me out? If you want to see power, I'll show you power. And the man overwhelmed them and chased them away naked from the house. And I'm sure, I'm sure the early church loved telling this story, right? Can you just imagine being like, remember those sons of Sceva? Remember when they took Jesus' name in vain, right? I'm sure they had a laugh at all of this because it was brutal. But before we get into some more and some further questions, I want to pause and ask one fundamental question. And it's this. It's a simple question. Why didn't Jesus' name work to rid this unclean spirit? Why? And it worked for Paul. Why didn't it work? Well, here's the simple answer. Because Jesus is not a God to be used. He's someone to be worshipped and honored and revered. And that's what these guys were doing. That's what these seven sons of Sceva were doing. They were using God. And <laughs> God wouldn't have it. He wouldn't let them use him. Right? And it begs an obvious application question, which is, do we use God? Do we use him and interact with him like a vending machine or like a pinata in the sky? And <laughs> as you can imagine, just logically, it says... Fear fell upon all in Ephesus. Of course it did. And then we read in verse 17 that the, the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Literally, it means he was praised as extraordinary. Because God's name is meant to be praised. It's meant to be extolled. It's meant to be worshipped. It's not meant to be used. It's a good story, right? It's a great story. We could all terrify our, our children with this story. But you might think, what, what does it mean, or how does it apply to us, or what's the big idea here? And also, like, how, does this, how in the world does this apply here in Corvallis? I mean, Corvallis has ivory towers. It's not kind of the, the epicenter of the occult. And I think there is truth to that, that Corvallis might be more like Athens than it is like Ephesus, which Paul just came from. But I think our problem is one and the same. It's the problem of acculturation. It's the problem of assimilation. It's the blender problem, I'll call it. The problem of taking two distinct religious worldviews and putting them in a blender and blending them together. Now, it was about eight years ago now, I remember coming to Oregon State, and I was doing research, and I remember thinking, I'm going to have to be on top of my intellectual game when I come and do ministry at, uh, as a campus minister at Oregon State. I remember thinking, like, I got to read Ravi Zacharias and Josh McDowell and every book by Tim Keller and thinking, oh, my goodness, like, I'm going to have to deconstruct everyone's worldview. And I think the funny thing is that when I came to campus, I realized that for the most part, everyone seemed to kind of believe in God or believe in a God. It was God with a lowercase God, but it was God nonetheless. I very rarely met someone who was an atheist. That was Oregon State's campus. I mean, 
I have a card in my, actually in my wallet right now that says religious advisor, Oregon State University. The president of the university knows that I go on campus to share the gospel with people, and they don't care. I mean, this is bizarre, right? Because in one sense, spirituality is wonderfully in vogue right now. Right? We just we take some Buddhist meditation and some Hinduism, and we combine it with some Mormon manners and some Oprah slang. We kind of shake twice and throw some superstition in there, and out pops Corvallis religion. Blend one's favorite parts of Christianity with another religion, and out pops your unique religious smoothie. Right now, I don't know if you were like me, but I loved when I was a kid going to 7-Eleven. I love 7-Eleven. And I love Slurpees. Um, brain freeze aside, I loved 7-Eleven. And so my friends and I, we would, we would go to 7-Eleven, and there's kind of this tradition, because you, you eventually look at all the different flavors, and you go, which one am I going to choose? And then someone in your group inevitably goes, why not try all of them? And so what do you do? You put a little of every single flavor in your cup. And we would call it graveyard, which should be a sign right there that this is a terrible idea. And yet this is what we do. And you would drink it, and I don't. it would taste horrible. It would taste what I would think snake pee would taste like or something like that. It was absolutely horrible. And yet we know that this pretty much doesn't work with anything, and yet we try it with religion. And that's what was going on in Ephesus. And it's what's going on in Corvallis. And in all honesty, it's as old as dirt. If you read your Old Testament, you come away knowing that God has many concerns for Israel, but one concern comes up again and again and again as a theme. And it's God's preoccupation and demand that Israel not dilute themselves in other pagan cultures. They were supposed to be distinct, prophetic from the outside. They weren't meant to be a religious slurpee, right? A little Baal, some Asherah, some Zeus, and just a hint of Molech, right? No one wants Molech. He did the child sacrifice stuff, so just a hint of that. Like, that's not what God was asking them to do. No, pure devotion to God necessitated no devotion to other gods. And we see it clearly in the Ten Commandments, don't we? The very first says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Pretty clear. And then we get to the third commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or, or serve them for I am the Lord your God and I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. It couldn't be clearer. But we know as we read our Old Testament that time and time again, story and story after story, Israel fails. And here in Ephesus, we see the Ephesian, even the Ephesian Christians, becoming religious slurpees. And it's in this little story, in this little narrative, that we actually see three ways in which Christianity and kind of pagan Ephesus were being combined and kind of blended together. If you, you see in verse 12 that they were using superstition of using Paul's clothes to heal people. In verse 13, they were using Jesus' name to try to exercise people in a very kind of financial gain sort of way. 
And then in, in verses 18 and 19, we see people in Paul's community actually practicing magic arts and even having kind of spell books. Now, before we kind of become judge, jury, and executioner of the Ephesian, I just want a, a little bit of a thought experiment. So pretend that you live in Ephesus, and all your life you're steeped in spirituality. And here comes another religion. And you're not familiar with it, but that's nothing new. Religions come and go all the time in Ephesus. But you hear and you see some amazing things. You see power. And so you think to yourself, well, this guy named Paul, he seems like a relatively normal guy. Would it not be perfectly logical to assume that his, his clothing or kind of a, uh, any type of artifact that he had would be infused with power, kind of like a talisman? Of course, if you were in Ephesus, you'd probably think like that. It's perfectly logical. Or think, what if you were just a, a, a Jewish religious spiritual healer? And, you know, when things got difficult, the community would call on you and say, hey, we need, we need your help. We really need your help. And you're, you're self-employed, right? And your family's financial well-being is based on and in jeopardy every time you try one of these healings or one of these exorcism. And, and all honesty, you need another good review on Google to keep the business going. And then something strange happens, right? Something strange happens. And a Jewish man who uses a different name, Jesus, comes and he starts doing extraordinary things. And you think, maybe I just missed something in Torah class. What could it hurt? What could it hurt? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be perfectly logical for the man to use Jesus' name as just a means to an end? Right? Of course it does. It's really easy to put ourselves in the Ephesians' shoes and say, hey, I, your problem is probably our problems. Because in all honesty, Ephesians do what Ephesians do best, and we can't really blame them. And that's the problem with assimilation. That's the problem with religious slurpees. Because we're like the proverbial fish in water. Right? We're just swimming there and we don't know any better. It creeps up on us. Just think of all of the warts on Christianity. Think of all of the warts on Christianity. Think about people two, two three, four hundred years ago, Christians in America who owned slaves. And you can read this and you're like, these are perfectly rational people. How in the world? How did they sleep at night? How, how, don't they know what an affront that is to the image of God? And they just, you keep, you're like, what in the world? And yet they didn't see it. They had a blind spot. I mean, some did, but not enough did. Christianity in any culture in any time has blind spots. Things that only hindsight can point out. Cultural sins which are just smuggled into the church, hidden for years only exposed by the grace of God. And yet, even in a culture like that, there's something even more amazing and even a bit more puzzling than kind of the, the slurpy problem. And I said I'd get back to this, and this is what I'm getting back to. It's that God still works in cultures like this. God actually used the superstition of the Ephesians in order to heal people. Verse 11, God actually used the superstition to heal people. Baffling. Or look at, look at verse 18. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Did you guys catch the order of that? 
Some believed, some were converted, and then they confessed and they stopped their magic, their occult practices, and they burned their books at great financial cost to themselves. And the order is important, isn't it? They didn't burn their books and then they were converted. That'd be working your way to God. God saved them, converted them, and out of that, then, after sitting down under Paul's teaching, they were like, huh, probably not the best idea to have conjuring up the devil on our family bookshelf. We should probably get rid of this. But all of that happened after their conversion because God's grace began to penetrate these Ephesian Christians and they slowly began the process of maturing. And God's grace is all over the pages of this narrative because God works even in Ephesus. God is at work in Transylvania, which is amazing. Now, a curious thing happened in 2008. I was working at a Christian college and I preached, probably, by my estimation, the worst sermon that has ever been preached by a Christian. Afterwards, after I got down, I just imagined angels in heaven with their hands over their face, begging God to do something. That's kind of the feeling that I got with all of this. I know it's a bit subjective, but that's my feeling. February. Nearly a year later, uh, this, this young lady came up and she said, you preached last February, didn't you? And instantly I'm like, uh-oh. So I'm getting ready, and she said, I just wanted to say that um, as a result of that sermon, me and my dad reconciled, and I forgave him, and God's doing some amazing things in my family. And I remember being like, did you hear my sermon? <laughs> did you? But that's the amazing thing about it. She heard a better sermon than I preached. That's grace at work. He uses small, meager things to do amazingly wonderful things. Now, hear me. Hear me just for a sec. I'm not advocating for superstition like Acts 19 is normative any more than I'm advocating for preaching bad sermons just so God would show up. That's not what I'm saying. The point is that even in an assimilating culture, God works in the slurpy graveyard of our religious culture. God descends to our level like a father descends to his one-year-old and speaks baby talk to us, babble. One-word sentences, all so that we can understand. But if you read your Bible, would you expect anything differently? God doesn't convert the beautiful. He beautifies the converted. I mean, flip over to any miraculous healing, and one thing stands out. All of them, from men, women, children, all of them, imperfect people with imperfect faith who just happen to stumble upon Jesus and find him, what, smiling back in grace to them. This whole narrative is about God. It starts with God, verse 11, and it ends with God, verse 20. God and his mighty and powerful presence in the midst of the Ephesians is the central point. Darkness comes, but the light overwhelms it. Now, on a surface level reading, we could think, this is pretty dark. Magic books, the occult, the demonic, but in one sense, this should make perfect sense when you think about it. Because the greater the light, the greater the darkness that must exist to overwhelm it. I mean, it's much harder to darken a room when the sun is shining through the window. Light, darkness. 
it is a major theme in the Bible, especially in one of the Gospels, the Gospel of John. I mean, just think how the Gospel of John starts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was nothing, anything made that was not made. Tongue-tied. In him was life, and the life was spirit, the light of men. That's how Jesus is described from the first on, uh, from the first beating of the pages of the Gospel of John. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You keep reading in John, in John 8, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never be in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then 2,000 years ago, this light came, right? And darkness flees. All those who walked in light, the darkness, it can't touch them. You keep reading, and in, in John 12, Jesus is told, Jesus talks to his disciples, and he says, you are going to have this light just a little bit longer, which should terrify the disciples, and it should terrify us in one sense. The light of the world was leaving. Darkness was going to attack the Son of Man, the, the Messiah, Jesus. Uh, that's what happened. Betrayal, flogging, crucifixion, death, all to the perfect light of the world. It would seem as though darkness had triumphed. The sun is dead. Even the sun is eclipsed in darkness, as Luke 23, 44 tells us. Right, right before Jesus is killed, right before he dies, darkness comes upon the world. Darkness wins. Darkness reigns. The light of the world stamped out by darkness. Three days later, Mary Magdalene, Luke te or, uh, John tells us, comes to the tomb, and it says, she came to it while it was still dark. Isn't that interesting? While it's still dark. But what did she find? An empty tomb. An empty tomb. The body was gone. Jesus was resurrected, and darkness had left. I mean, the rest of the narrative, two chapters, the theme and the word of darkness doesn't come up anymore. I mean, on every chapter, darkness and light comes up as a major theme, and it's gone, completely gone, completely gone. The image, the theme, the symbol is gone. Jesus had vanquished it, and darkness is not what it used to be. That's what John's telling us. Now, darkness is real. We know it's real. It still exists, and we see it in our text. But what do we see? We see the light of the world, the word of the Lord, spoken in John 1, and he's there, and he's bursting forth his light while men and women and children are freed from the dominion of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were full of darkness, Paul writes and, and, um, to, the, to the letter of the Ephesians, but now you have light from the Lord. And then he gives this command, so live as people of the light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. So you have this great darkness, and it pushes against Paul and the early church, but the light can't be stopped. The light can't be stopped. Uh, a few weeks ago, my son 
ran down the stairs because he was scared. He was scared. And every parent, I did what every single parent for generations has done. I tucked him back in bed and I did what? I turned on a light. I turned on a light. Isn't it interesting how just a hint of light shining in the hallway is enough to comfort the most frightened of children? Because that's what light's supposed to do. But you see, for the Christian, light takes on a new form. Light takes on a new form because we say to our children, and inevitably we say to our own souls, see that light over there? I can just imagine saying this to Calvin, or to Sadie, or to one day Graham. Do you see that light over there? The light shining in the darkness? That light, that glimmer of light, that reminder, it's, it's a reminder. It's a reminder that there's nothing to be afraid of because there's a greater light, a more comforting light, a, a more powerful light, and you can call on him. And at any moment, in any circumstance, at any time, you can call on him. And he has a name, and his name is Jesus. Now, he won't be used, but you can call on him for help, for rescue, for comfort, for hope, for joy. Because darkness is real. It's not just imagined, but the light of Christ, it's truer. It's more powerful than the darkness because Jesus is with you. That's why we read Psalm 23 and say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. You are with us. And so we get tucked in by the light at night only to be woken by the light in the morning. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness, it can never extinguish the light. God, we, um, we are so thankful for your son. We are so thankful that whatever moment we find ourselves in, whatever situation, we know that you are our great comforter. And we thank you for your son. And we thank you that your son sent his spirit and that his title is comforter. And so I pray whatever darkness we might be experiencing, whatever suffering or um, situation we find ourselves in, I pray that you would, in a powerful and palpable way, comfort. That we would all experience your love, your affection, and we would all experience it in a new way this week. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.